0: Will Joe Biden take bold action on climate if he becomes president? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate emergency. I'm Greg Dalton. Biden's climate plan is the most ambitious of any presidential nominee and hopes are riding high that he will reassert U.S. leadership on decarbonizing the global economy. Seven out of 10 voters support action on climate, and three-quarters want the country to get all of our electricity from renewable sources within 15 years. Wildfires and extreme storms, along with terrified kids, are galvanizing public support. But as someone who's been talking about climate for a living every day for 13 years, I'm having an eerie feeling of deja vu and reflecting upon how we got here. It'll start getting cooler. You just watch. California tonight is home to a record-shattering heat wave. Climate
1: change has been polling as a top issue in the 2020 Democratic primaries.
2: This should not be a partisan President issue.
0: President Trump taking swift action to roll back much of President Obama's climate change policy. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate accord. Today, the American people can be proud because this historic agreement is a tribute to American
3: leadership.
1: President Obama is making the fight against climate change central to his legacy. Latest... My
3: presidency will mark a new chapter in America's leadership on climate change that will strengthen our security and create millions of new jobs in the process. That will start with a federal cap and trade system.
2: Spring 2009. Early in President Obama's first term, Hopes for the country's first national climate plan rested on the Waxman-Markey bill. It proposed a cap-and-trade program that would place a limit on greenhouse gas emissions while creating a market for companies to buy and sell permission to pollute. John McCain and Barack Obama both supported cap-and-trade, as did many of America's biggest industrial companies. But that window of opportunity didn't last. The idea of placing regulation on industry and costs on consumers in a country recovering from recession generated fierce opposition, and the bill didn't make it past the House. The so-called climate change bill is dead in the water in the Senate. Republicans still favored cap-and-trade because it was market-based and essentially created a new commodity to trade. In California, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was advancing a cap-and-trade program that was seen as a possible model for the country. But in 2010, the Tea Party burst onto the scene Making and took aim. Cap
4: and trade, yeah. or as I call it, tax and kill, because yeah. it's going to tax
2: us to kingdom come and cool. kill jobs. One week before the 2012 presidential election, Superstorm Sandy hit the East Coast, causing Barack Obama and Mitt Romney to both briefly pause their campaigns. With climate-related storms rising, Obama focused on climate in his second term. He enacted the Clean Power Plan, rejected the Keystone XL pipeline, signed the Paris Agreement, placed limits on natural gas methane emissions, introduced stricter emission standards on vehicles, and blocked oil drilling in the Arctic Circle. By 2016, the U.S. had the most ambitious climate agenda it had ever had. But we all know what happened next.
0: Donald Trump has defeated Hillary Clinton to become president-elect of the United States.
2: When President Trump took office, the rollbacks began. Within his first year, he removed any mention of climate change from the White House websites placed climate deniers and fossil fuel executives in leading environmental positions, repealed the Clean Power Plan, and withdrew from the Paris Agreement. When Democrats took the House in the 2018 midterms, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other new members with ambitious climate agendas took center stage. She swiftly introduced the vision of a Green New Deal with Senator Ed Markey,
3: We must be as ambitious and innovative in our solution as possible.
2: The resolution was an ambitious plan to move the country towards completely renewable energy in the next 10 years, while establishing a jobs program and other social services like Medicare for all. The Green New Deal generated vast ridicule on the right and skepticism from some and exuberance from others on the left. The Green New Deal is much more ambitious than the 2009 climate bill and is a rallying cry of the youth climate movement. Joe Biden has embraced the Green New Deal as a framework, though he doesn't often say its name.
0: No, I don't support the Green New Deal. Oh, you don't. I support the Biden plan.
2: Still, his $2 trillion climate plan is more ambitious than that of any other presidential nominee in history. In the last decade, the United States has wasted a lot of time addressing climate change at the scale that we need. But in the 2020 election, if Joe Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate, he and Kamala Harris may have a chance to make up for lost time.
0: That was freelance producer Juliana Bradley. On today's show, three leaders of national organizations who will press Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to turn their plan into law if they win. Gina McCarthy is president of the NRDC Action Fund and was chief of the U.S. EPA in President Obama's second term. Annie Leonard is executive director of Greenpeace USA. And Tamara Tolles O'Loughlin is North America director of 350.org, a grassroots environmental group. I began by asking Gina McCarthy what lessons can be drawn from the failure of Barack Obama and Joe Biden to get a national climate plan in place when they were in office. One of the things that, that
1: thankfully... I think Joe Biden did uh, when he really was getting the nod for his nomination and before that happened is he spent a lot of time with environmental justice advocates. You know, he, he really is a a person who was uh, uh, engaged somewhat in climate, but, but it, I don't think it was as yet sort of ingrained into him. Well, it is now, (laughs) you know, because they personalize this for him. And he's a very, personally wonderful human being uh, just from knowing him and and he so it, the lesson is is that for me has always been don't talk about climate as a planetary problem don't actually dissect it from all the other systemic challenges we have with conventional pollution and with systemic racism that has led to so many communities having disproportionate impact and then make sure you talk about it in relevant terms you know, I think way too much us green groups um, really just talk about we, the only thing we care about is birds and bunnies who are lovely, but but really we're all talking about human beings and our human lives, and, and it needs to be related to families. It needs to be related to on-the-ground improvements. So my hope is that instead of running to now big big solutions that don't dedicate real benefits to, to Black and Brown, Hispanic, Indigenous communities, first and foremost, that those no longer are the thing to shoot for. We need 2 <laughs> I don't just want greenhouse gases. I want fossil fuels gone. I want fossil fuels out of products. I don't want to help fossil fuel industry to, to extend their life. I want them to recognize that this is bringing down communities, most importantly, environmental justice communities. And the best thing about Biden's plan is he centers justice and equity, and he, and he indicates and commits to 40% of the investments that we need to make to boost us out of our economic doldrums are actually going to be invested in environmental justice communities. So so between the time he started campaigning for this presidency and, and the time he was nominated, we now have a president that I believe is, has full-throated the effort of addressing climate and his engagement in it. And I'm really excited about it. It is by far and away the most aggressive climate plan of any presidency. Can it get better? Sure. You're sitting with three women advocates who are going to demand better, but we'll always do that because it's never going to be enough because we got to act and do it all now.
0: Tamara Tolles Laughlin, you say that when Joe Biden is fighting for real people, he's gutsy. How do you rate the Biden-Harris plan uh, for for climate action?
3: Uh, I'd say it is the most ambitious plan to date. That actually says much more about the canon of presidents than it does about this particular moment that we're in, to be fair. But I do think there has been a real um, responsiveness to what our demands are. I'm here on behalf of young people, on behalf of people who are no, who wouldn't consider themselves young in any space, on behalf of that multiracial, multigenerational organizing that really pushed us to this moment, recognizing that The establishment is not going to get where it's going if business as usual is what's on the menu. So it really does feel like we're in a, conversation about climate ambition because it was job one for all of us who care about this work to make sure that it was as important as any other issue and really the umbrella that it is because you can't talk about education or voting rights or any of the other things on a planet that does not exist. And as I have said it before, and I will say it again, until I see a room full of bears sitting around trying to talk about how to save us from climate change, people and planet is where the work is happening.
0: Any letter presidents typically have priorities and lots of people pulling on them. How will climate rank in the context of a global pandemic, record unemployment? It's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to get it through Congress once in power. And we saw last time that, you know, healthcare went before climate. Will that happen again?
4: Absolutely not uh, for a couple of reasons one is we are not going to let it. I mean the movement is so strong, so united the context is different than the last time Joe Biden was anywhere near the White House is that the science has changed climate crisis is here and now I mean it is so clear that it cannot be postponed at this point with the time frame we're operating in there's no material difference between a climate denier and a climate delayer They have to hit the ground running on day one but the great thing is that we don't we don't have the luxury to sol- solve one's problem at a time, but we don't need to because the great thing is how much the solutions are interconnected. We can do things like massive investment in clean energy infrastructure that addresses environmental justice, disproportionate harm. It addresses the economic doldrums Gina referred to. Like the same things can solve all of these problems at once if we have a comprehensive approach, if we stay um, united, which I have total confidence we're going to do.
0: Tomorrow, climate used to be about future generations. In recent weeks, we've seen climate crises on both coasts, wildfires of biblical proportions, and five hurricanes spinning at the same time at the, in the Atlantic. How is the political calculus changing, especially for young Americans?
3: Mm, I would say that the, we're in the middle of a four-generation time period. There are four generations of people in the workplace. There are four generations of advocates folks who started out at Woodstock with half an idea, ended up with a job. And I speak on behalf of 350 and just say that, you know, we're middle-aged at 10 years old because some groups started exactly two minutes ago and others have been around for over a hundred years. And we're in a moment where we're all pushing for the same thing at once. Energy needs wisdom and vice versa, and so we are in a time when the youth agenda is no different than the Black agenda, than the Indigenous agenda, because at the end of the day, we need to be in a space where we can move the needle for change, because there is no separation of success here. We're, we're in a time test, as Bill McKibben likes to call it, and I assure you that at the end, when the buzzer is up, we'll all be in the same boat, so we might as well be running in the same direction. So for youth who are raising it, they are supported by middle-aged people who've been asking for it and by the elderly who are, in my opinion, are frankly willing to sacrifice everything. I've seen more seasoned people running out in the street to get arrested and putting their bodies on the line than I have in the last 15 years. If you find me a room full of seniors, I probably got the most reckless bunch you've ever seen. So we're not calling for a referendum on business as usual. We're calling for the end of business as usual. We're not calling for a wraparound plan where we figure out how to do a little bit of bad stuff. We're calling for the end of sacrifice zones. And that is about making sure nobody feels safe continuing to feed us a line instead of doing the work. So there isn't a single person in any committee who can hide out in their office and not respond to that.
0: Gene McCarthy, speaking of no one is safe, everything's on the table. There's a class of people in America who live on the coast, who maybe they're environmentally oriented. They might write checks to NRDC or the Commonwealth Club or Climate One. And a lot of them want to keep mainly market structures in place and take out brown energy and put in green energy and keep everything else in place and keep their comfortable lifestyles in place. Is that realistic?
1: No, I think life is changing. And The reason why we're seeing people my age on the streets is probably because we were given the gift of having grandchildren. (laughs) And so I'm not now worried about my sacrifice. I am worried about handing to them a future that I'm going to be proud of. And I've worked my entire life for this. And if you think I wouldn't really talk turkey with some of these older people who think you can still remain comfortable and that you can sort of position yourself to get a little done, but it don't we really have much meaning in my life? It's just not right. And, and yes, I'm uncomfortable about all the change I need to do as quickly as people are demanding at NRDC and other places. Of course, it's uncomfortable, but we got to embrace it, Right. This is a time for change. And the most, the only thing that I can, that gets me up in the morning is to know that we are so bad off that change is essential. You know, I love the idea that, that people who have been comfortable sitting in Congress for 40 years getting used to this little march of, of really pokey people. Right. If they if they just get a, you know, a sense that they can't be comfortable anymore, that they're not going to hang around. I really think that's great. It's called democracy. (laughs) You know, if you don't do the will of the people and instead you want to maintain things as they are because it benefits you or because you don't think you contributed to the problem, then I'm sorry. It's just not working anymore. So we got to get comfortable being uncomfortable and we got to stop trying to make it go away in a flash and really make people go away in a flash out of government who haven't figured out that we don't need little steady progress, but we need big leaps. We need those to be doable. We need them to bring people behind. We need them to shift jobs, not leave workers behind. We need labor engaged. We just have to be smart enough to recognize that this is a social system where you you fix the system, not a single thing in it. You fix it all at once. And and we can figure that out. This is not rocket science.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate ambition coming up the moral and strategic case for bringing everyone to the table.
4: To build a movement big and broad and inclusive enough to drive change at the level that we need, to be able to take on the fossil fuel industry, we need everybody. But we also need to do it because absent that, winning is not really winning.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about climate ambition with Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of the NRDC Action Fund and a former chief of the U.S. EPA under President Obama. Tamara Tolles-O'Loughlin, North America director of 350.org. And Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace. The crying Indian TV ad, launched on Earth Day in 1971, is one of the most iconic advertisements of all time. It is still shaping our conversations today about how to confront climate disruption.
3: Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country.
2: And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it.
0: The ad framed environmental issues as a matter of individual as opposed to corporate responsibility, as Annie Leonard explains.
4: Well, that ad was very significant for me as a kid. You know, I was trying to explain to my 21-year-old what a big impact it had on me. I told her, you got to remember back then there were only like four things you could watch at any time to choose from. So that means like a quarter of the population saw that at any time. It was constantly on the air. And I took it to heart. I thought people can stop People start pollution. People can stop it. So I picked up litter every day on the way to school. I did exactly what they wanted me to do, which was perfect my own individual action and focus on that. So a couple of things about that ad. First of all, it's not an Indian. It's an Italian dressed up as an Indian. Let's just be clear on that. Second of all, it was not created by an environmental group. It was created by a faux environmental group that was um, launched by a bunch of packaging companies, plastic packaging producers and and users. And their goal was not to stop pollution. Their goal was to get us to stop putting the heat on them and to put the heat on us. And it was enormously successful. And my entire generation took it to heart and thought that by perfecting our individual actions, we can solve these problems. And I I, want to be clear, it is really important that we recycle, that we compost, that we you know do all those things are the right things to do. But that's not how we create big, bold, systemic change. At this point, with the scale of the problems that we have, doing things like carrying your own bag to the grocery store and not littering, those sort of fall in the category of flossing your teeth and washing your hands. like This is basic adult hygiene. This is not deep political change. But but it was intentional because they know that when we come together, not as individuals, but working together as engaged civil society, that's how we make change. And when I look at the climate movement now, we have every single thing we need. I think it was Gina so one, or Tamara, one of you just said this is not rocket science. We know how to power our country. We know how to meet people's needs in an equitable, just, and sustainable way. We have model economic policies. We have innovative green technologies. We have common sense. We have every single thing we need except the power to make it so. And that comes from people not focusing on perfecting their individual actions, but working together. And that's where the movement is now. And that's why we're going to see change. That's why we've already seen Biden's plan move so much. And we're going to move him even further.
0: Also in 2005, BP popularized the concept of a personal carbon footprint and launched an online calculator in conjunction with its Beyond Petroleum campaign run by Ogilvy and Mather. So the very notion of a, I just learned this recently, been doing this a long time, the very notion of a personal carbon footprint was popularized by an oil company that was kind of, again, focusing action back on the individual. Tomorrow, how can people think about more about systems than
3: straws? Sure. Happy to jump in on that. But just first want to flag that that one, it's an entirely different podcast, the conversation around how uh, coal, oil and gas benefited from asbestos and trash uh legacy of creating the disinformation machine we are not up against our individual choices for a real reason because we have been told that we are our own problem and we are our own solution which allows us to overlook the 70% of things we could do together so just wanted to flag that like we are not going to save the planet the whales or any people if we are not looking at the largest corporate actors 7 out of 10 of the biggest things we could do to save this planet involve shutting down fossil fuels Ending their reign on our democracy, taking their filthy money out of our conversations, Uh, the way we talk about problems, the way we frame solutions, the kind of data that we use. They have so infiltrated every part of this that there are many words that you'd have to bleep if I used to talk about plastic is so much a part of our lives that we forget that it's another part of this conversation around what's happening with coal, oil and gas. Every single thing you could touch within five feet of you is somehow connected to this industry. And that did not happen by accident. It happened because of a concentrated campaign to infiltrate your life with things you do not need and make you feel like you can't make change. So getting together with other people to really focus on who the bad actors are, where the largest um, bang for our buck would be if we get together, leads you back to the same place. So we're in the same conversation, whether we talk about um, recycling, composting, plastic straws, personal behavior. I get in so many questions around whether or not we should change our eating habits. Sure, go ahead and change them. I'm sure your health practitioner would be thrilled if you did. But the thing you could do for the planet is to really focus on the loosening the grip of coal oil and gas on our future and doing that with other people who agree to the same. And what I would argue is that if the problems that we have all identified just in the beginning of this conversation are about design, the answer is redesign. Like, and, I, and I think that's a lot scarier um, than people might think because it involves making the change that Gina referred to. But I can assure you, redesign is what we know how to do best. We didn't end up in this moment by accident roadways, airways, transportation, jobs, infrastructure, human health. We designed all of it. And we designed the rest of the ecosystem and consigned it to our fate. So it's time for us to do the work of redesign by examining the premises underneath what we are talking about here. So you, you really pushed my, my, my big ticket item as an advocate, but systems level practice is about doing what you do as if you were everyone else and then asking for us to do more.
0: Gina McCarthy, you've gone locked horns with the powerful fossil fuel interests in Washington. Exxon was recently removed from the uh, the Dow, which is quite a symbolic measure in terms of its prominence as in the American economy. But the fossil fuel industry still has endless, virtually endless amounts of money to defend their profit streams. You know, even if Joe Biden gets in there, there's still coal state Democrats, still lots of concentrated power defending those interests. How does that play out? Well, the
1: fossil fuel companies are just literally shameless, to to be honest with you. So they'll never go away. I think one of the biggest challenges we have to face, and it was a challenge that was pretty much front and center in the Green New Deal and ends up being a significant push point in the Biden plan, is that these Democrats are worried about the economy in their states. We have to acknowledge that we're worried about the economy in their states. I'm worried about jobs. That's why it's if it's a systemic issue, you worry about the economy and jobs. It's not like we want to shut down all of the, the coal mining and just leave people to their own devices. We're talking about a just transition. So will that make them happy? Maybe not. But they have to get over the fact that the world is changing. It's just how. And if you don't want a world that is going to change and shut everything down, then we have to talk about transitioning the world we have to a new system. And, and Greg, can I just react to two things Tamar said? Because it, it was pretty powerful. The first thing is this plastics issue drives me crazy because the fossil fuel industry is sitting under the radar screen as if the problem with plastics wasn't theirs. It The, the reason plastics don't go away is they're fossil fuels in another form. And the industry, as soon as they realized they might be phasing out of some part of the power sector, they started building huge plastics factories where? In Cancer Alley. Because these people need jobs. Nobody needs a new plastics factory. Everybody needs a job, right? And so it's just the, the shamelessness of this. But the other issue that I want to hit is this, you know, this we are overtaken now by people who just talk about individual freedoms. It's this whole mask thing, right? As if they're exerting their own personal freedom. You know, the United States was built and certainly our regulatory structure was built on the fact that every human being has a right to air, clean air, clean water, clean land, a safe place to live, a house over their heads, good food to be able to eat. That's individual freedom. Individual freedom isn't about masquerading by getting rid of regulations that are solely in place because you stop other people from having those fundamental rights. And so you have to be regulated. So this is my life here. I don't regulate to add burden. I regulate to allow people to have their lives. Because otherwise, how is a single individual or community going to stand up to a coal producer or company in their midst if it wasn't the the government stepping in and doing its job to protect people? So this whole sort of bastardization of the idea of individual freedom is really behind so much of the challenges we have today. You have no right to kill other people. You have no right to do that.
0: If you're just joining us, our guests at Climate One today are Annie Leonard, Executive Director of Greenpeace. Gina McCarthy is President and CEO of the NRDC Action Fund and former head of the EPA under President Obama. And tomorrow, Tolls O'Loughlin, North America Director of 350.org. I'm Greg Dalton. Tomorrow, there's often a narrative that you know, our house is on fire. We got to put out this fire, climate change. We can worry later about other things like who has many toys or you know racial justice, some of this wealth distribution stuff that can wait later. And you say that the you know some of the crescendo moments for you were Katrina and Flint, um, which show that. Uh, tell us about the lessons from Katrina and Flint and the idea that racial justice should somehow come later.
3: Sure, uh, I would say that that's also a function of design, the work of environment and which began from the work of conservation literally involved the murdering and displacement of tons of people, and then we focused on a blade of grass, or pardon me, a trigger warning, sage grouse. I know a lot of people fought and died for that, so just want to flag that like there are a lot of things that we have put into very slim and narrow conversations around what is the environment. So it's actually quite revolutionary in this moment that we can talk about people and planet because we wrote every law, as though magic hands would make it happen. Uh, We didn't factor in the impacts on how any of this was gonna focus on people. We are in a moment where we really have a specific view of racial justice as a part of climate justice, because to do anything else is to completely excerpt the future from the conversation that we're in. We can no longer pretend that parks will be great if there aren't any people in them or that the next generation of people won't be Black, Indigenous, or people of color. Despite what's going on in this country in so many spaces, the census has projected that we will be a multicultural people sooner than we think. And given that that's true, every part of conservation and environment and restoration practices for land, air, water, and all of that work comes together with the sacrifice zones that we have exiled our neighbors ourselves into. We have zoned people to death, and none of that is what the future looks like. Because coming together for integrated solutions through a lens where we do not accept people's identity as a reason to exclude them from doing this work, because the future is off doing this work together, that sounds radical until you say it out loud. And then it sounds ridiculous. Because what about being Black, Indigenous, or a person of color would make you anything other than an original steward of what we have going here? We are the people of the global majority. If you cannot see me, I am a Black woman. So let me just let me just put that out there. But the, we're in a moment where we're doing this work authentically means making sure all the impacted folks are in the room, not as a favor, but because it gives us a strategic advantage on how to deal with the issues of our time. The stewardship issues we are facing now are not new. The crises and the urgency of failing to do stewardship work for this long has delivered us to this moment. So whether we're talking about a standing up in an uprising with a movement for black lives, recognizing that Latino votes are about Latino people, like, like raising our issues around our race consciousness is actually the only defense we have left. for for the world that we're in. You don't have to be a futurist to care about climate justice. You have to be someone who's looking at the reality of what it would look like to try to do this work in the ways that we have done before. And we can't extract any further. We have to be in right relationship with each other as people before we can be in right relationship with the planet. So it feels like a radical concept unless and until you think it through.
0: Gina McCarthy, so many white people have had you know, reckonings lately, sort of understanding things that people of color have said, yeah, we've been living with that. And that's it's new to you. It's not new to us. What have you learned about your own white privilege since George Floyd was murdered?
1: Oh, it's, you know, I think myself and a lot of people I know, people in my family and my friends, and certainly my work colleagues, you know, we, we all of a sudden had to step back and and realize that our old wisdom of yeah i'm a good person you know I, I care about these things just sort of fell all apart and 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 i realized when i was doing work in climate that when you when you really think about all the work that needs to be done you know, you're thinking about all the housing that that needs to be retrofit, you know, and turned into electricity. You're thinking of the transportation challenges. Then you watch COVID-19 hit and you realize, you know, all of these challenges, the vast majority of them are really the result in many communities of just systemic racism. It started in federal law, you know, and it's worked its way and it's still happening. And then you look at at how you grow jobs, and I'm not going to convince, you know, a, a coal miner to take a ninety thousand dollar a year job, and and then go put solar panels up for twenty thousand. You know, you, we have to really look at the disparities here, and if we fail to do that, there is no lasting solution here. You know, we just got invited to be on a on a, a really great national. Um, committee that's looking at how to address the housing crisis and how to get the homeless people taken care of. You know why? Because I have a lot of young employees and staff people at NRDC who are working on Energy Efficiency for All, which are programs that is really looking at doing energy efficiency in, in areas that have been left behind, the poor communities. It's saving them money, it's reducing energy demand, it's taking care of mold in houses that make our kids have asthma attacks. And you're looking at this going, this is how we want to act as environmentalists. I don't want everyone to come to my table. I want to recognize that going to this is where the action is because they can help define the solutions that are best for them. It's the same with transportation. Everybody's gonna be making big EV announcements. I'd like to know how transit's gonna recover from the, the economic you know, sort of crisis that we're in. If we actually think that the racial injustice can continue for a moment longer, then we have missed the entire message that, that the three of us are trying to give today. It is part and parcel of why we are where we are. Somebody else designed that world and we have to, as Tamara says, just redesign the whole thing and recognize that we're just not on a path of sustainability. It's not going to make my grandchildren the kind of future that they have, they need to have. And we can't tolerate it. It's a silly argument that just doesn't understand the kind of world we live in and the world we have to live in.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate ambition. This is Climate One. Coming up, putting politics to work for the people.
3: Politicians only do what you give them room to do and what you give them cover for. Look in the mirror and figure out how far you're willing to go to get the world you want to live in and who else you need to bring along with you because there is no such thing as a lone wolf saving us from climate.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about climate ambition with Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace, Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of the NRDC Action Fund, and Tamara Tolles-O'Loughlin, North America director of 350.org. Let's go now to our lightning round, where I ask our guests to answer word association questions with wild, reckless, unfiltered abandon, beginning with Gina McCarthy responding to the name of her former boss, Mitt Romney.
1: I work for him. I like him. He's a normal human being. Uh, and he, I actually got him to sign our climate action plan. But he, he put a little cover letter that said, but I'm not sure about the science.
0: Annie Leonard, what's one word or phrase that comes to mind when I say John Muir?
4: Heavy, mixed, complicated. Things are hard.
0: <laughs> Tomorrow, Tolles O'Loughlin, the Republican Party's stance on climate change.
4: Non-existent.
0: Gina McCarthy, Flint, Michigan. Painful. Annie Leonard, the book Democracy in Chains. Read it now. <laughs> Tomorrow Tolls O'Loughlin, RBG.
3: Everything. Excuse everything.
0: Uh, Gina McCarthy, what comes to mind when I say China's pledge today to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060? Uh, getting there. Uh, this will be uh, true or false. Um true or false for tomorrow tolls or laughlin. environmental groups have asked you to take jobs without real responsibility to make them look more diverse.
3: False. I'm a heavy, I'm like brown bread. There's no chance I could show up with less density.
0: True or false Gina McCarthy Academia is not your cup of tea. Correct. True. Yes. We oui. <laughs> <laughs> Annie Leonard, true or false? There is a climate champion on the ballot.
4: False. We could make one. We there's somebody we can make into a climate champion. But you know, I should say actually, to be determined, right? We're we're waiting to see.
0: No climate messiah. Uh, Gina McCarthy, uh, true or false? National climate policy passed by one party will not be durable. That is true. Uh, Last one for Tamara Tolles Laughlin. you don't eat meat and you don't care if other people eat meat. True. I don't give a damn. (laughs) Uh, You know, that gets through our lightning round. We have a question from uh, listener Alan. Uh, This is for Gina. How will a 6-3 right Supreme Court affect climate legislation and regulations?
1: It's it's, uh, going to make everything extremely difficult. I mean, I don't think people realize that RBG was really solid on both climate and environment and people's access to the courts to challenge when government doesn't protect them. I mean, she she was in the majority of the Mass versus EPA that really brought carbon pollution into the Clean Air Act and allowed us to regulate it. She was the one who said that people in communities, if someone's polluting them and your government isn't protecting you, you have a right to go after that. I mean, she was the one that stood up for the clean water act uh, when it was being sort of rethought of in the Supreme Court. She's been fundamentally incredibly solid on the environment, which should surprise nobody at this point, I think. So we are in deep trouble on all those things. If you care about climate, you better start voting for some really good senators uh, and uh, and, uh, a president that's going to make the kind of change we need. That's the only way that's going to protect us. I think we need to really flip the
0: Senate. I want to talk about how we talk about climate change because there's some real research, uh, Annie Leonard, that a lot of people, even people who say climate is a concern, they don't talk about it very often. So, and when people do talk about climate, how should they talk about it? Because there's the the doom and gloom, there's the you know the facts that can confuse people, there's the the righteousness, there's lots of ways to shut people down pretty quickly when you bring up the topic climate change. What's a way to open them up?
4: Well, I think how you talk about climate depends on who you're talking to, right? Like you don't say the same thing to every friend that you have. You tailor your conversation to the person and that's what you have to do with climate change. For some, you talk about your grandchildren. For some, you talk about how awesome it'd be if you could have a, a clean way to commute to work on some mass transit. Um, if for people that are concerned about democracy, you talk about how we have to get fossil fuels out of our government. There's lots of different entree points. But I think that the point of talking about climate change is really fascinating and and important. The Yale Climate Communication Project has done some research on how people in the United States interact with climate. And what they've found now is that a significant majority of people, it keeps growing, but it's around 75% of the public in the United States understands climate, is worried about climate, wants stronger government action. Like 75% of the people agreeing and wanting stronger government action is enough to make it happen. But then when they poll them about are they active about it yet, are they talking about it, they're not yet. And there's actually only one place in the country where people say that naturally in their conversations climate change come up, which is probably because of you, Greg. But it is San Francisco is the only place where people are normally talking about climate change now. And we can't combat something that we don't talk about. So we've, it's really important for folks to get familiar with talking about it in whatever way is comfortable for you. Try different things. There's lots of resources online. but We have got to turn the volume up on the conversation about climate change and make it exciting, not blame and shamey, as you guys were just talking about, but exciting, inviting. Really, it is a potential way to have a much better – dealing with climate change is a potential way to have a much better, safer, healthier future. And the more we can focus on that – the more inviting it'll be. So everybody should commit to 10 conversations in the next week about climate change, see how it goes, and then 10 more the next week and end them with asking if folks are registered to vote.
0: Tomorrow, how do you talk about it? What, what's you find an effective way to reach uh, people? Incessantly.
3: I mean, I'm a Brooklynite. So there are a couple <laughs> things I do pretty regularly. Tell people I'm from Brooklyn they, if they don't hear in my accent or my hands gesticulating wildly and climate change. Mostly because it is the umbrella to every other conversation. You want to talk about education, guess what's going to impact whether or not people can get it? where people would go for it, and the conditions they would be in it. I feel like uh, that character in the movie about uh, the big fat Greek wedding, give me a topic, any topic, and we'll probably end up talking about climate change by the end of the conversation. In my community, that's about stewardship. It's about community. It's about making space for people to operate as they have done with resources. And that means thinking about the future, which is endangered if we don't get our hands around what we're doing to drive climate change and build out the worst trajectory we've Ever faced as a species. So I do think talking about climate is like talking about the weather, if you will.
0: We have a question from listener Carol says, uh, What is your best elevator speech to a non voter who says, candidates are all the same? They all lie. They're politicians who failed us.
3: Uh, my, well, my gut is politicians only do what you give them room to do and what you give them cover for. So our politics are only as bad as our engagement. So at the end of the day, if you don't like what's happening, you can push the button and make them move away. And if you want them to do more, you can get out in the street and create an agenda for yourself. We are no longer in a time where we need a proxy. We set up proxies to make the work happen. So I do think look in the mirror and figure out how far you're willing to go to get the world you want to live in and who else you need to bring along with you, because there is no such thing as a lone wolf saving us from climate.
4: Also, while our electoral system has disappointed us many times, there is no way that Trump and Biden are comparable on climate and a huge number of other things. So just look at the um, policies. And while neither is where I wish they were, neither one is saying that they're willing to actually stand up to fossil fuels and say no new fossil fuel uh, permits, which has got to be a crucial step. One of them is movable and the other is not. And I would far rather push a moderate, then fight a fascist. And they are very, very different.
0: Gina McCarthy, how much damage has been done to EPA and can it be restored in one presidential term?
1: Well, I think, you know, with some of the rollbacks, you know, I think certainly a lot of them are being challenged in court and, and they're losing because they didn't follow the science of the law. But that, I, I don't think that really properly characterizes the damage that they've done. You know, I've been a career public servant all my life, uh, prior to going to NRDC. And, and I loved every single minute of it. And I worked with some of the most creative and smart and strategic thinkers that I've ever worked with. And, and they were there. They knew what their job was. And it was, it was there to protect people. And maybe they couldn't go as far as people want, and maybe sometimes it didn't go well, but this president is is really has undermined the scientific credibility of these agencies i mean scientists have left because they can't stand the kind of stifling that that is that is being done uh to them and they they want to do the right thing and and I think if you look at at uh the past year or two. The rollbacks are, are really being done challenging fundamental ways of reading the law and looking at science and the challenging procedures that have been in place since Ronald Reagan. And, and so it's, it's a dangerous time because many of those fundamental relooks at what the Clean Air Act says in the most creative ways to stifle protections are going to end up at the Supreme Court. They're going to end up there. We're not going to get them out without that kind of fight. And you know that every industry is lining up to support all those appeals all the way up and hopes that a change at the Supreme Court is going to make the most foolish interpretation of the law, the law of the land. And so we have to, you know, it, you know, anybody that that is just sitting around saying, I, you know, I'm not going to vote. That's probably the worst, you know, position that anyone can take. It's indescribably bad and, and negligent. And And if you don't vote, you get exactly what you deserve. But the problem with that is I get exactly what you gave to me and I won't tolerate it. So if some I, you know, I give lots of speeches at colleges and, I, and in the end, I say, OK, nice standing ovation. How many of you are registered to vote? How many of you voted? And I tell them, if you're not registered to vote and you don't vote, as soon as you possibly can, do not stand up or even come in this door again. You know, we got to get serious. And we've got to have hope that there's someone we want to vote for. And and I know who I'm voting for. Um, and I'm, I'm going to vote, uh, just like Mayor Curley in Boston said, vote early and vote often. But don't do the often part.
0: Yeah, we've, we've had some guidance on that. As we as we wrap up, I want to ask you. You know, we talked about comfort and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, and people kind of thinking they're doing addressing climate from the positions of comfort. What would cause you to, I don't know, get arrested, engage in civil disobedience, do something for climate that you have never done before? Really get out there. I mean, I've done lots of changes. I can't say I've sacrificed. Uh, I've spent money, made modifications. What's that next step tomorrow? What, what something would cause you? You have a young child. You know What would cause you to really take that next step?
3: As an African-American in this country, I think I was born in a sacrifice zone. I live in a sacrifice zone, having moved every three years for 20 years doing this work. Every place I've ever lived, I've lived in a sacrifice zone in this body, in this racist widget we, machine we call America. So the sacrifices I'm willing to make are to bring in other people who need to do this work. So our work at 350 and 350 Action is so much about educating, political alignment, bringing people into a conversation about what how it is they can weaponize their privilege. That's the sacrifice that I'm willing to make because the optics on that got us here cannot get us to the future. So I'm willing to get into conversation with people who need to put their bodies on the line because it's their turn. Annie Leonard. I wanna reframe
4: your question, of course, because first of all, comfort is no longer one of the options on the menu. There's like that path is closed. So the question is really which discomfort are you gonna pick? And um, we are gonna change by design or by disaster. Either way, if we if we are proactive, intentional, if we center justice in our work, if we have the courage to take on the fossil fuel industry, we can change by design. If not, change is still coming, but it's gonna be a lot less just, a lot more violent, a lot more painful. So let go of any notion to think that comfort is one of the options. And I'm also going to challenge your sense of sacrifice, the use of the word sacrifice, because what I'm going to do, I just turned 56. My college kid is done with college. I am liberated from a lot of the things that slowed me down when I was a young woman. For me, it is full steam ahead now. I am devoting the rest of my functioning years to fighting climate, and sacrifice is not the word I would associate that. I would associate with courage and joy and having a meaningful life. And if anybody on this panel or listening would like to engage in civil disobedience to get arrested, please contact Greenpeace because we have awesome training and lawyers, and we'd love to show you how to do that. But sacrifice is not the word. I am going to fight with everything that I have, because honestly, what is at stake is everything that we love. And I invite you all to join us.
0: Gina, last word.
1: Well, the only thing I would say is that if Trump wins again, then I don't think there's any choice but to get out of our homes and to make our views heard. Now, I am not talking about violence, but I am talking about the civil disobedience as a person, the civil disobedience that that needs to happen when you realize that democracy has been taken from you. And I'm not talking about what I do as NRDC president because they don't like civil disobedience. But civil disobedience was the hallmark of huge change in so many ways. So if anyone says, ooh, civil disobedience, well, think Rosa Parks. Is she a heroine or not? Uh, Think RBG, because I'll bet if she was still alive, she'll be trooping on the streets too.
0: We've been talking about climate ambition with Gina McCarthy, president and CEO of the NRDC Action Fund, and a former chief of the U.S. EPA under President Obama. Tamara Tolles O'Loughlin, North America director of 350.org and co-chair of the Green Leadership Trust, and Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace. To hear more Climate One conversation, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.